entirely possible that I say this too often. It's entirely possible that I don't say it often enough. I guess I think I don't say it often enough, and probably people who hear me say it think it's too often. But let's think about that as we begin today. Are you one of the people out there that just loves to complain about the current state of things, or are you someone who's determined to be part of the solution to the current state of things? You see, I don't think I say it often enough, often enough that I'm tired of hearing people complain about things. Why can't this be better? Or why is this this way? Or why won't so-and-so do this? There's a lot of people that love to point out a problem and complain about it. But when I say to them, well, do you want to fix it? Then, boy, things change quickly. People don't want to be part of the solution. Now, why is it that we want to complain about things instead of be part of the problem that, or the problem solver, we should say? Well, we're going to talk about how that played out in the history of God's people today, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So don't go away, but keep thinking, are you one who would prefer to complain or do you want to be part of the solution? Because there are some things that we need to think about as being part of the solution. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, the program where we challenge each other to develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because we say that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And part of our wrestling with complaining or being part of the solution really comes down to, do we have confidence in God? Are we the kind of people that trust him enough that we can get involved and in a sense, a very real sense, be partners in what God is doing or wants to do? Well, I think we need to wrestle with that in these days and and make sure that we aren't the complainers, make sure we are the problem solvers. And of course, you're not surprised to hear me say that. You probably figured that from the, the very fact that I posed the question. Well, before we get to all of that, um, you should know that I am the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and it's our church that's pleased to bring you these programs every week, and we hope you find them helpful. Our church is a group of wonderful people that, that work to accomplish God's purposes in the world. We are not naive about what goes on. We try to be very much aware of things and do our part to solve some of these problems and to help guide our nation, our community, really, because we don't have a national impact. But we think that when we guide our community, we are affecting the nation. So we're trying to work locally to have an impact that will eventually have an effect on things across the country. And we do that a little bit at a time by different kinds of things that we're involved in. And I want to encourage you to be that same kind of people, to be involved where you can, because you'll be surprised at the opportunities you have. I'm regularly surprised at the opportunities that we have, that our church people have, that I have, to be a part of the solution. Are we always able to accomplish everything we wanted to? No, not always, but at least we're in, involved and, and we've participated and uh, we'll be doing that some more as we go forward. And I want to talk a little bit about the state of the world that we find ourselves in before we get into the, the real heart of what we want to look at in the life of Elijah, the prophet. But I want to pick up again on this idea that we live in a time where there's a huge battle between that which is true and that which is false. 
obviously there are many times when we hear people assert that which is just plain wrong. They decide they're going to do that. Maybe they want it that way, but we can easily tell that what they're saying just isn't the truth. And so we need to recognize that. We also need to recognize that part of what goes on and a significant part of what goes on is people trying to massage the truth into their perspective. And we have to be forthright and discerning enough to, to sort through all of that to get to the real truth of the situation. Uh, if you watch any television, and I hope you watch minimal, particularly of the news, because it's not news, it's almost exclusively opinion these days. Even the, even the programs that pretend to be news are heavily opinion. And one of the things that we've noticed is there are a lot of people that speak on, on television programs and, and they're invited to give their point of view. We call that spin. They will give their perspective on something or spin it in the way they want you to think about it. Almost every commentator is advancing an agenda of some kind, their particular viewpoint, putting their spin on the story. Well, part of what we need to discern is when they're giving us their perspective versus what is unarguably true. So don't be deceived. Don't misunderstand. All of the people that are out there are not out there to tell you the truth. Many, many of them are out there to tell you what they want you to believe, and they don't necessarily even tell you all of the facts. So it's very important in these days that we recognize there's a battle between truth and falsehood or truth. And if you want to be blunt about it, and sometimes we should be between that, which is absolutely certainly true and that, which is a lie and that, which is somebody's trying to make you believe something that isn't so. Now, one of the areas that pops up is, and I want to say this carefully, but forthrightly, I don't want to be the kind of people that I've heard some people be. I want to be honest with you and straightforward but I don't want to be rude, crude, and, and all of the rest of that stuff to people that I disagree with. But there is a term out there, and I talked to the church about this last week, and I thought, well, you know, we ought to talk about it here because it really is creeping into the national consciousness. And I think that we who are faithful followers of Jesus and those of us who want to do the right thing, who try to follow God and his precepts, we need to be discerning about these things, and we need to be honest with ourselves about them. And so there's a term that's being used. You may not have heard this term. In some respects, I hope you haven't. In other respects, you need to know about it because it is popping up more and more. It's been a part of the public conversation for at least a year. I'm pretty sure it's, it's been 18 months or more when I first really began to take the use of this expression seriously. And I, and I want you to take it seriously. And if you haven't heard it, um, listen for it, because it's absolutely critical to understand it. And the term is simply this, Christian nationalism. And you may have heard because you're a bright audience and you listen to things other than, than the uh, normal, what should we say, propaganda outlets. And yeah, I think many of them are. And yes, that's why you need to discern the truth from falsehood. But this idea of Christian nationalism is really an important term because it's being used in ways that I don't think most people recognize. And I think too many people are 
are rather naively accepting what is being said without realizing what's behind all of that. So I want to say it straight up that the term Christian nationalism, as I've heard it used, is a slur on the people of God and the church. Yes, that's what I think it's being used for. It's simply you being used to denigrate God's people and people with good hearts and trying to marginalize our voice and our participation in the public conversation today. Now, when I first began to hear this idea of Christian nationalism and hear people talk about it, it was curious because the way they were describing Christian people and churches that I've been around, and I've been around churches a long time now, I, I thought to myself, I don't, I don't even recognize what you're talking about. I've never seen such a thing as you're describing. And, and I don't want to go into what I heard them describing because it's really difficult to describe what they were describing because I'm not sure that they're describing reality in any sense of the term. Maybe there are a few people that match what they're describing. Maybe, but I've never been around them. I've never seen it. So I've come to the conclusion as I've listened to various people use this idea of Christian nationalism that it's a slur on the church and that they're using that to marginalize good-hearted people so that we won't speak up and assert our perspective on things. You know, I said earlier that there's all these people out there that are what we call spin doctors, putting the spin on the current events and ideas that are out there, trying to convince you of their point of view. Well, they use that idea of Christian nationalism simply as a way to marginalize your point of view. So don't buy into that. Understand every, every time you hear this idea of Christian nationalism, your, um, your detector ought to, ought to really spring to life. What, what detector is that? Your baloney detector. Because this Christian nationalism idea is not something that I've seen as real. Now, honestly, when I first started hearing it, I thought, well, I want to make sure I understand this because I don't want to just jump to a conclusion blindly or or callously or anything else. And so I do what I frequently do. I started to look into it and I came across a book that was allegedly written by academics. I think they were academics. I'm, I don't question their uh, attempt that they were doing, but I started to read the book because I wanted to make sure I had a good sense of how people were defining this idea of Christian nationalism and then how they were understanding its works in the country today. And, and I tell you, I, I looked at that book and I started reading it. And, and again, I did not recognize anything they were talking about. It's like they were making something up. Now, I don't know if the authors were making something up. Maybe they had seen what they were describing someplace, but I'm telling you, I couldn't get into it at all. I quit reading the book. I don't know if I'll ever go back and try to read it some more. It was just like, no, they're trying to manufacture something that they can criticize. And in doing so, and they, they can attach the name Christian nationalism to it so that all of us who are good hearted people and who, who try to follow Christ will, will retreat so that we're not accused of being what they're writing about. Well, whatever, just understand when people use the term Christian nationalism, almost exclusively, they're using it as a slur. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard it used that it wasn't some kind of attempt to denigrate, 
talk down about, criticize, or slur people of good hearts and people of faith in Christ. So be very alert to that. This, this is all part of what's going on in this battle between truth and falsehood. And we need to, we need to be very aware of it, very conscious of it, and don't be intimidated by it. You know, I'm regularly think about, and again, this is maybe something I don't say often enough, and maybe some people think I say too often, but Abraham Lincoln was right when he said that our country is of the people, by the people, and for the people. That means everyone should participate in the life of our country. I'm convinced it's our Christian responsibility because of what God has given us in the gift of liberty. We need to be good stewards of that. And I am absolutely convinced this slur on the church, often going by the misguided description of Christian nationalism, is simply an attempt to marginalize your voice so that voices that disagree with you can be heard. We need to not retreat. We need to speak up and we need to talk about the things that matter to us because we have every opportunity in this country and it is our responsibility. Remember, many Christians have lived in many times and many places where they did not have the freedom to do what we have. And they had to work in other ways to persuade people to follow the gospel, to hear the words of the Bible. We have that privilege, and it's part of our legal understanding that we have freedom of speech, free expression. And so we need to not be intimidated by those things, and we need to respectfully but forthrightly advance our concerns and argue for our position. Nothing wrong with doing that. Nothing wrong at all. And just because somebody accuses us of, of this straw man of Christian nationalism, we should not be intimidated or bow down to that. We only have one audience to please, only one, and that audience is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that rules and reigns over the universe. We please him, and we need to develop our understanding of participation in light of that obligation and that by that test, I guess you could say we cannot remain silent because we know what is good and what is bad. We know what is right and wrong. And the battle comes down to truth versus falsehood and then good versus evil. And when we know the good, we should be willing to speak up for it. And when we see evil, we should be willing to call it out and urge people to turn away from it. So that's a little bit of an idea of what's going on in the country, this battle between truth and falsehood, this battle that's being waged against the people of God, framed by the concept of Christian nationalism. And really the whole thing that's going on these days is absolutely clearly a battle between good and evil. So take heart. Evil has been crushed. And one day, one day, God will make all the wrong things right. And it's not about, is he on our side? It's about, are we on his? So let's take a look at Elijah. The story of Elijah is quite fascinating from the scriptures. Elijah was one of the prophets that, that the Old Testament teaches us about. And just in case you hear the word Old Testament and you go, oh, well, we're not supposed to bother with the Old Testament because we have a New Testament. No, that's just not the case. We want to talk about some of the, some of the things that God 
has given to us in the form of a story of Elijah and his encounters with, with evil. And I want to make sure that everybody understands that the Old Testament is absolutely critical to helping us understand both our day and time and the New Testament. Run from people, and I mean run from anyone who says, ignore the Old Testament. That is simply, absolutely a critical error. So we want to talk about some of the things from the Old Testament, the story found in First Kings, and we're going to look at that, and I'm just going to kind of walk through the story. I really don't think I'm going to read too much of the story because it's, it's a long a long portion in the Bible, and I don't really want you to think I'm talking down to you by just simply reading to you. The, the story begins in 1 Kings chapter 17, and you can read it for yourself, and I urge you to read it for yourself, absolutely. Uh, do not hesitate to, to get your Bible and read that story. It's fascinating, uh, Elijah's encounters and how God unfolds the story, and we're going to kind of walk through that and try to help uh, ourselves understand what's going on. And, and to, to set the stage, let's talk about some of the characters that we're going to meet along the way. And of course, Elijah is God's prophet. He is recognized as a mighty spokesperson and mighty force for good in Israel at that time. He was God's representative for that day and age. And he robustly defended God and challenged the people forthrightly, I mean, and dramatically and and, and he stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with evil in, in a way that most of us will not be expected to do. But his experience tells us a lot about what's going on. So Elijah is God's prophet and God's representative. Uh, one of the other chief characters is Ahab. Ahab is a wicked king of Israel. He is the king of what we call the northern kingdom. The, the, the country or the kingdom of Israel had been divided, and Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom. And Ahab introduced Baal worship to Israel. Baal was, a, was an idol, and we'll talk about that in a middle minute. But Ahab was, was very instrumental in leading the people away from God, specifically toward worshiping Baal. Ahab had taken a wife. She became his queen, Jezebel. So she was queen to Ahab, and she was, she was not from among God's people. And God had given clear instructions that kings were not to take wives from other countries, and Ahab violated that command that God had given and took Ahab, or took Jezebel, into his kingdom, and she became his queen, and she strongly supported Baal worship. She strongly supported it in many ways, including she killed many of God's prophets, not Elijah, well, we're not going to get ahead of the story, but she tried to get Elijah, but she couldn't get, kill Elijah. And that, that fight between Elijah and, and the forces of evil, Baal worship, and specifically Jezebel, is part of the story. So you need to understand who she is going forward. And, and by the way, nobody today, at least that I've ever heard of, names their child Jezebel, because Jezebel's reputation is so so bad. Well, the other thing I mentioned, or the other character in the story that should not go uh, unrecognized, because we're going to we're going to see that that the the contrast or the fight between God and and this idol is real, is Baal. Baal was a a, a pagan god con, con, conceived by the people and worshipped by the Canaanites. He was a Canaanite storm god. They believed that Baal was the bringer of rain, 
and so was linked to fertility, particularly in terms of crops, but fertility in other ways as well. Often when Baal was depicted in ancient times in a, in a drawing or, or other type of artwork, he was shown holding a lightning bolt. So that, it's important to remember that, that Baal was this Canaanite storm god, and they believed that Baal was responsible for bringing rain. Now, to be sure, in those days, they didn't have meteorological understanding like we do. And so they, they conceived of a god being responsible for rain. And so even God's people recognized that it was Yahweh that provided the rain for their crops. They gave him credit for that in a way that we don't tend to think of. Although clearly, if God wants to change the seasons, he can. And yet in those days, they, they called upon their God or the God that they chose to worship to bring rain and Baal was believed to be the, the God of the storms and so responsible for bringing rain. Very important to understand that as we get into the story. So the story opens with Elijah saying to King Ahab that there will be a three-year drought in Israel. So Elijah goes to see Ahab, tells him that there will be a three-year drought. God has decided that, and it, there won't be rain until God and Elijah say differently. When Elijah speaks in these stories, he's speaking for God, so don't misunderstand that. He's not speaking on his own. Elijah is representing God. And so he says to Ahab, three-year drought. Well, that's not a good thing to say. I mean, nobody wants to have a drought. They were very susceptible to the, the, the rain and the seasons. If they didn't have crops, they didn't eat. We still are today. We just don't tend to think of it that way. And, and it's, it's on a broader scale because of the global marketplace today. But clearly in those days, if they didn't have rain, they didn't eat. They didn't have places to turn. And we remember the problem of drought from the story of the Exodus. But let's not get sidetracked on that. Let's just focus on this, that Ahab made this statement to Ahab. Then he fled to a place called Cherith, where God told him to go and stay by a brook there. And so Elijah did that. And the scriptures tell, tell us something very interesting. It tells us that God sent ravens morning and evening to feed Elijah. So he had food to eat, bread and meat brought to him by the ravens morning and evening there at the brook of Cherith. And he stayed there for quite a long time until the brook dried up. Now, why would the brook dry up? No rain. Okay, so he was there until the brook dried up. And then God said to him, okay, I want you to go up to Zarephath. And you go up there and you're, you'll meet a widow and her son, and you're to stay there and, and live with them. And, and he stayed there. And the whole time there was a miracle that took place. God provided them with food during this drought. And, and as best we understand it, Elijah stayed with them three years in that area. So by that three years, whatever time he spent at the brook, I don't know that we know exactly how long it was, but it doesn't take very long, really more than a season to not have rain and not have crops before it really begins to bite. And the effects of it really begin to be felt across the whole region. So he's there for three years. The drought has continued all of this time. And so now it's time to take it to the next step. So from Zarephath, Elijah, go, or Elijah goes to Ahab and tells Ahab, 
to gather the people of Israel and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. Okay, so Elijah goes and back to Samaria where Ahab was and tells them that what he what they sh they should do gather the prophets of Baal and meet him on Mount Carmel. Now, what was about to take place was a very significant, how would you say, event, but it was more significant than sometimes that we realize. So this was becoming uh, a, a focal point for the people of this time, the people in this kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, to decide between God and Baal. Now, Ahab and Jezebel had been promoting the worship of Baal, and Elijah had been trying to get the people to follow God. And so they set up this contest. Now, we don't think of it as a contest, but really was what we call an honor contest. And it was going to take place on Mount Carmel. So that's why Elijah went to Ahab and said, gather the prophets of Baal, and meet me on Mount Carmel. We're going to settle this thing. Well, it's a little bit added there. That's really what happened. And so they meet on Mount Carmel. Now, what's important about this place and this honor contest is that Elijah and God are putting it all on, on the line. They're, they're going to demonstrate either God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, the Lord God himself, is either God or he's not. And they're going to challenge the people to either follow God or follow Baal. So this honor contest is set up there on Mount Carmel and is held on in, or in a spot that's Baal's best territory. Uh, related to the worship of Baal is mountains. And so Baal is characterized as being on a mountain. And so they gather there on Mount Carmel. The mountain is strategically located between the territory that had been historically a territory that worshipped Baal, Phoenicia. So it was historically in his, his neck of the woods, you might say. So he had an advantage of being in, on kind of home turf, if you want to think of it that way. But it was also kind of on the border between the area that had been Baal's territory and Israel, the place that he was trying to claim as his own through the efforts of Ahab and Jezebel. Now it's set up, this honor contest is set up in every way, in every way to give Baal the advantage to win. And that's very interesting to notice that because God doesn't set this up to give himself the advantage. Clearly he wants the people to understand that Baal has every opportunity to prevail. So what I mean by that is the place was favorable to Baal on a mountain near his territory, gives him every advantage because he should be able to take advantage of that location. When it came time, they brought two animals, two bulls to the sacrifice area. And the challenge was that, that to see which God would respond to their request for fire. But it started out by Elijah saying, well, here are two bulls. And he said to the prophets of Baal, you get to choose which one you want. And so they had the advantage of place on a mountain in their territory. And then they had the first choice of which animal they were to sacrifice. So nobody could say there was any mischief because they had the 
the best place. And they had the first choice of animals. And then of course, the deciding factor would be which God would answer by fire. And of course, that should have given Baal the advantage because he was characterized as the storm God, the God of rain, the God who brought storms. And so having been characterized that way, understood by the people that way, often depicted with a lightning bolt in his hand, it gave him the advantage because it was all of the things that the people who worshiped Baal knew about him and would have expected about him. So this whole honor contest, and we'll talk about the details a little bit more in a minute, this whole honor contest was set up to give Baal the advantage, the opportunity to win. Now, most of the time when there's a contest you and I think about, we want it to be fair. We want the, the, the participants, maybe the teams, to play by rules that are fair to each team. But see, clearly in this case, God is allowing, I guess we could say unfairness, to give Baal every opportunity. And the reason that was done is because this is an honor contest and the people that are gathered there will see which God prevails. The Lord God himself, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, we sometimes call him, or Baal. So they would have understood that Baal was without excuse if he didn't come through. And so that, in that regard, Baal had what we might say home court advantage. He had every opportunity to demonstrate who he was in response to the requests of his prophets. And we'll talk about that when we get back. And, and I think it's absolutely fascinating that God gives him the advantage, but I don't think it'll be a surprise who wins in the end. God always wins. I read the back of the book and we win. We'll be back in just a minute. Take a break. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'll see you on the other side. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Surely, if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. So you can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. 
So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great, convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -E and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, the program where we challenge each other to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we've been talking about the story of Elijah, the prophet from 1 Kings. Starts The story starts in chapter 17. I encourage you to read it there. Elijah has called Ahab and the prophets of Baal to meet him on Mount Carmel for an honor contest. Once and for all, at least so Elijah and God hope, we can see that it's not nearly that simple, but once and for all, it will be demonstrated who is, who is the real God, either the God of Israel, Yahweh, or Baal. And so Ahab has responded to the challenge, brought all the prophets there, 450 prophets of Baal, versus one prophet of God, Elijah. So for many reasons, Baal has the advantage, every opportunity to demonstrate that he is superior to the God of the Bible. And so the contest is set up that they, they will build an altar, each group, Elijah and his group, well, it's just Elijah, and the prophets of Baal will each build an altar, and they will prepare the sacrifice, the bulls that were brought for a sacrifice, and then they will call on their God to send fire to consume the sacrifice, to set the sacrifice on fire in the way they would typically, to typically give a sacrifice. Only this time, they wouldn't add the fire. The God would be expected to do that, either the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Baal. So Elijah allows the prophets of Baal to go first, and they prepare their altar and their sacrifice. And then they begin to call on Baal to answer them and to send fire. Now, remember, Baal is the God that has lightning bolts in his hand. So they shouldn't have every reason, if he is real, to expect fire. But they call on him for a very long time. I mean, it goes on and on and on, and it gets into incredible hysteria. They ultimately begin to slash themselves until the blood runs on the, on the bodies of the prophets, and still nothing. Elijah, in the process, taunts them. Where's their God? Maybe they need to cry louder. But ultimately, nothing they do, nothing they do results in fire coming and consuming the sacrifice. Finally, their time is exhausted, and Elijah builds an altar, rebuilds the altar. It's described there in the scriptures. He uses 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He prepares the bull for sacrifice and puts it on the altar. And then he prays and he asks God to send the fire to, um, 
to consume it. Well, that, before that, let's not forget, before that, he has water poured all over the sacrifice. Now, remember, there was a dry time, so, so even water was in short supply, but he found water, got water all over the sacrifice, and, and even they built a trench around the altar and filled it with water. There was, there, it was well watered. So the point of that is it's not going to burn easily. So for, for Elijah to have some kind of trick up his sleeve, it's preposterous to think that now after the altar has been saturated with water, that he could set it on fire. But he prays, and he prays very forthrightly that God would show that he is the true living God and send fire to consume the sacrifice. And God does. In an amazing fashion, fire falls from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the, the wood, consumes the stones, licks up the water around the altar that they had poured there. There is no mistaking it that God has responded and the fire has blazed in an incredible way. Uh, I guess the way they, the prophets of Baal expected Baal to respond, God has responded and then some. God has demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt, and the people all cry out, the Lord is God, and they recognize that Baal is not. Part of the cleanup of all of this is Elijah orders the prophets of Baal taken and slain, and so they kill the 450 prophets of Baal, and it sets in motion a series of events. Uh, Ahab certainly is not pleased by that, but Elijah says you need to eat and drink and get ready because things are about to happen. Um, condensing the story some, of course, Elijah goes up on the mountain to pray, and he prays and has his assistant watch the sea. Now, he can, this area overlooks the Mediterranean Sea. It's near the shore there. And so he sends him back to look and see if there's a cloud being formed seven times. Finally, on the seventh time, he reports to Elijah, I saw a cloud the size of a man's hand. Not a very big cloud, at least what he can see from the distance that he is, but he sees a cloud beginning to form. Elijah then moves immediately, gets word and says to Ahab, you need to get ready to head back because there's a storm coming. You need to get back to Jezreel right away. And Another miraculous thing happens. Yes, Ahab gets in his chariots to take off back, but God moves on Elijah, and Elijah then runs ahead of the chariot all the way, about 16 miles, back to Jezreel. He runs in front of the chariot pulled by the horses. That's just remarkable. Well, what, what's that demonstrate that the power of God is going before Ahab and the power of God is coming behind him. And how can he not miss what's going on? But he does. He gets back to Jezreel, Ahab does, and, and uh, he goes into Jezebel and he tells Jezebel all the things that happened, all the bad stuff that happened there at Mount Carmel. And Jezebel is infuriated. Now, remember, she's wicked through and through, been well demonstrated up by this time. And she's, she's infuriated. She sends word to Elijah that she's going to kill him without a doubt. And, and Elijah gets the message and he flees. He flees all the way south down to Beersheba. At Beersheba, he dismisses his servant and sends his servant on his way, says his 
help is no longer needed or something like that. We don't know exactly uh, why Elijah dismisses him. We think, and a lot of people have talked about a lot of different things, but, but we think that Elijah assumed that his ministry was over because Jezebel had threatened to kill God's prophets beforehand, had done so. And so Elijah thought that, well, apparently it was time for him to be moved off the stage. He didn't really want to be killed by Jezebel, so he ran uh, for his life. And he probably thought his time of, as a prophet was over, so he would have sent his, his helper, his assistant, his aide on, the, on his way. Well, at Beersheba, then he continues on, and um, Elijah by this time is just exhausted. And it says that he, he took shelter under a broom bush, the only kind of bush in that area that would have provided shade. He was exhausted. He collapses. Uh, is later awakened by a messenger from God. We might call it angelic messenger who gives him food and, and water and encourages him to, to eat and drink. And ultimately he takes enough refreshment after he's traveled a little bit more and the angel visits him again, enough refreshment that he, he flees for 40 days and 40 nights. The, he, it was explained to him that he would need the refreshment for the journey. And he keeps on going south to get far away from Ahab and Jezebel. So he goes all the way down to Mount Sinai and he collapses there again. And, uh, Along the way, God had asked him once before, and now he asks him again, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, well, I've done everything I could, and they still are not following you. Uh, I, it's just time for me to die. I guess my ministry season is over. Now, people have sometimes tried to make a lot out of this, like saying, uh, and, I, and I think this is a little bit of flavor of the day interpretation, that, that Elijah was... Uh, how should how should we say Elijah was depressed? Well, I I don't know how you draw that conclusion from that. We we know Elijah was exhausted. He hadn't eaten until God provided for him. So of course he'd be exhausted. He was running for his life, and all that goes into that. So to to then jump to the conclusion that he's depressed, uh, discouraged, surely. But you know exhaustion brings out all of those kind of things. And if you and I get tired, well, I mean, we see it in kids all the time. When they get tired, they get cranky and, and all the rest of that goes with that. If they haven't eaten, they get cranky and all the rest that goes with that. So let's not assume Elijah went to a place that we can't be certain about. We do know he was exhausted because anybody would be. We do know that God fed him and on the sustenance of that one meal. He went all the way, 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai. But we also know that there's something significant about Mount Sinai. And of course, you probably remember that. That's where Moses, when the people came out of Egypt, that's where Moses went up on the mountain to meet God. And God showed up with amazing signs, uh, fire and smoke and loud noises and shaking, all the stuff that goes with it. And guess what? Here's Elijah there in a cave at Mount Sinai, and God asks him what he's doing here, and Elijah says, well, I guess it's over for me. And, and God says, well, pay attention, Elijah. And Elijah goes out, and there's fire, and there's smoke, and there's earthquake, and there's wind, and all of the things that, that we remember from God showing up at Mount Sinai. Here, God is coming again, and, and it gives all that huge demonstration of his power, and then he follows it up with 
still small voice. Long and the short of it is God's power demonstrates that he hasn't finished. God's power demonstrates that he is still fighting for his people, just as he had done at Mount Carmel. He hadn't given up and he hadn't given up on Elijah and he didn't want Elijah to give up on him. God was essentially saying to Elijah, all right, get ready. We're going back. And Elijah responded. A lot of us find ourselves in places like that, don't we? Where we say, man, I've done all this. And uh, I've even heard some followers of Jesus say, I've done my time. So I'm tired and hadn't done enough good. I just can't do it again. Well, Elijah doesn't say those words. He may have felt that way. Certainly he thought his ministry season was over, but God didn't. So we need to ask ourselves a few important questions about our response to the problems of our day. Are we going to complain and say, well, we've tried, God, we can't do any more. It's done. It's finished. Really, when we say that, aren't we saying we're finished? Because God is never finished. God does not give up on his people. God does not give up on his purposes. So let's think about a couple of responses here of what has happened in this story from a, from a bigger picture sense. First thing we should recognize is that even though evil was decisively defeated at the contest on Mount Carmel, evil people did not stop their evil ways. Jezebel did not say, oh, well, God must be God. I better change. No, Jezebel doubled down and went after Elijah. We need to recognize in our day that people who are evil and have given themselves to evil are not going to turn away from it easy. There is a powerful influence of evil that drives people to do things that they should not do. And we as God's people should not be naive just because evil was crushed and it was at the cross doesn't mean evil is giving up. Evil is still fighting forward. Evil is still trying to dis destroy what God cares about. Evil is still trying to counter everything good that God wants to do. And we need to recognize that evil is persistent. It was in this story. It, evil had clearly been defeated. There was no doubt. All of the people that were there recognized it. But the evil people didn't back down. They probably won't back down in our day. So we shouldn't be surprised, and we shouldn't let it discourage us. Because along comes God, and God meets Elijah. And along the way, God refreshed Elijah. Now, you and I, we might get tired like Elijah did. We might be discouraged. We think that things should have gone one way, and they didn't. We've all had seasons like that, and it tries our souls. But here's the question. Just because we have ups and downs in life, does that mean we should quit or should we look for God's refreshing? God refreshed Elijah, gave him opportunity to rest, gave him food and water, and ultimately, second, revealed his power. Not only did God refresh Elijah with food and something to drink in a land that had been suffering from drought, Elijah didn't suffer shortage of food. God refreshed him and then took him all the way to Mount Sinai, where he revealed his power to Elijah. In the similar way that God revealed his power to Moses and the Israelites, God had not been diminished at all because of the contest at Mount Carmel. 
And we need to remind ourselves today, God is not diminished. No matter what happens, no matter how much evil threatens or flaunts itself, or how many evil people refuse to believe the truth about God and about life, no matter how much resistance there might be, God is not diminished, never has been, never will be. And in a very dramatic way, there at Mount Sinai, God showed Elijah, I'm not diminished, what's wrong with you? And the essence of that is, of course, that if I'm not diminished, then I can give you everything you need to not be diminished either. And so God re-energized Elijah in this process. God recognized Elijah was a prophet, and Elijah was susceptible to all of the things that people are susceptible to. He was susceptible to the discouragement. He thought he had accomplished exactly what needed to be done at Mount Carmel. And by all the evidence, God was God. The people said it. There was no doubt about that. But in spite of the evidence, the evil didn't back down. And Elijah laid it all on the line. He was tired. He ran for his life, and he needed what God provided. The refreshment, the revelation of God's power, and then re-energized to go back and keep representing God. And in our terms, we might say, keep fighting evil. And so it didn't happen overnight, but Elijah went back. He went back and followed God's instructions, and the nation began to take steps through the prophet Elijah and then later Elisha to, to return to God. I think we should think about that in relation to our situation these days. And we look around, and there are a lot of things that, that seem to be overwhelming God and God's perspective. We look around, and we see the way people manipulate events, and they seem to fight against what God wants to do. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. We don't have to be happy about it, but we should recognize that evil is persistent. There is an enemy that fights against everything that is good, everything that God wants to accomplish. There's an enemy that seeks to destroy and devour all of that. And we shouldn't be naive to that. We should recognize that's the reality of the battle between good and evil. But we should also recognize that when we get tired of the fight, that God can refresh us. And he doesn't tell us to abandon it. He wants us to depend upon him to refresh us. Elijah did. Elijah thought his ministry was over. He thought his time had been completed. But God said, oh, no, not so fast. And he refreshed Elijah, picked him back up. God will pick you back up, too. Why did you quit? Or why are you thinking of quitting? Now, that happens to people. We, we get there. But we need to step back and say, now, hold it. What, has God changed? Has God's intention changed? then how do I need to allow God to refresh me? How do I need to see God in a new way so that I have absolute confidence in his trustworthiness? How do I need to have God reveal his power to me so that I don't get discouraged? Or I should say, maybe, so, maybe we should say, so I don't stay discouraged. What do I need to do? to allow God to re-energize me. And maybe it's a break. 
Maybe it's a, a season of rest. I don't find any problem with that at all. I find a lot more problem with quitting. Don't you? Because God hasn't quit. He hasn't quit on us. He hasn't quit on our neighbors. He hasn't quit trying to get through to the hardest of hearts, the most resistant, the most evil of evildoers. God still wants to get through to them so that they can get it right. And he wants to use us. He wants to refresh us or to reveal his power to us and to re-energize us to keep engaged in that process. So don't quit. Don't quit at all. Work to restore that which God wants to heal and make whole. You see, it's very interesting that, that in the Bible, Elijah went all the way, the story of Elijah, he goes all the way south to Mount Sinai, almost as far as you could go before you'd get into the, the Red Sea. And he met God there, and God said, okay, what are you doing here? It's time for you to go back. Elijah returned. Elijah went back. If God is saying to you, and I suspect he is saying to many people in these days, yeah, it may be a tough fight. Yeah, evil is persistent. Yeah, evil is not going to give up. But God is still God. And he's calling you to go back, to not give up, to re-engage, to recognize that God is not finished with you or these evil situations we see around us. God is always working to redeem, to restore, to make whole. And shouldn't we work to cooperate with what he wants to do? So are you going to be part of the problem and just complain about it? Or are you going to be part of the solution that says, by the energizing power of the spirit of the living God, I'm going to go forward and do what I can. None of us can do everything. All of us can do something. And what is it that God would have you do? Maybe you know, maybe you've done it, and maybe you've gotten to the point you thought, well, I'm just exhausted and I can't keep doing it. Take a break. Take a breath. Allow God to refresh you. Allow God to show you his power. Allow God to re-energize you because you can be a part of restoring the brokenness in the world around us. I don't see any reason for us to give up because as long as God is the God who rules and reigns, and he clearly is, and it was clearly made evident at Mount Carmel, it was clearly made evident in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that God is undiminished, his power is not lessened in the least, and he seeks to make the wrong things right, even in the lives of people today. Yes, when people turn away from him, they suffer greatly, as the people did in Elijah's day through the drought and other consequences of abandoning God. And yes, there may be some hard times for people today, but isn't that the opportunity that we have to say we need to change our lives, believe the good news, and follow the way Jesus told us to go? And God's counting on you to be your part, to do your part, to be his prophet in that sense, to turn people, turn people in your community, in your neighborhood, back to him. And I'm convinced you can do it. And I'm convinced working together, God's not finished with us. Sure, a lot of things look bleak, but remember, it's a battle between that which is true and that which is false. And sometimes we get our eyes on that which is false and forget that that which is true is 
just flat out true. And God's not abandoning that. Sometimes we get wrapped up in the, in the spin of the people around us. And so we think, well, all is lost. How can we possibly go forward? As someone said to me recently, it seems like evil is getting stronger. Well, I can assure you that evil is not getting stronger and evil is no match for God. And we need to follow God and do our part to make the wrong things right. We need to step up to the responsibilities in our communities. We need to step up to the responsibilities to teach children the right way to go. We need to step up and show the example of what it means to follow God resolutely. And I don't know what that means for you, but God is showing you even right now. And God is urging you even right now to re-energize and to re recognize that God wants to use you to redeem the world around you. And you know, when we all do that in our own local communities, guess what? Pretty soon we will have changed not just the nation, but the world. It happened years ago following that first day of Pentecost. It can happen again when the people of God keep their eyes on the power of God, the person of God, and the presence of God, and recognize he's going to lead us in the way we need to go. Well, I so appreciate you listening today, and I really hope you will take to heart that, that you have every opportunity to be a force for good in your community. I really hope that you will be encouraged. And I really hope that you will develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Because if God really is trustworthy, then we can trust him to help us accomplish his purposes for our lives, for our churches, for our communities. And one day we're gonna to get to share the stories of those accomplishments. And I'll look forward to that time. But until then, I'll see you next week.